Welcome to Everything Just Changed, a podcast where we are asking the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus and love our neighbors in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world? I am Bryce Hales, and I'm with my friend Brad Edwards. We are pastors and church planters, both planting churches in the Western U.S., but in very different contexts. And we're sitting down to talk about the opportunities that are being opened up for us in the cultural moment that we live in. Brad and I have been talking about how secularism has been affecting our culture, and uh, there are both manifestations of that on the right and the left side of the spectrum. We've been having those conversations for months, and then, what, eight weeks ago, everything just changed. And so now we're asking the question, what do we do now? And so over the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about how the COVID-19 crisis has just highlighted these undercurrents that were already there in our culture, the threat that it's posed to community, the way that a secular environment challenges individual identity because identity is something that we have to achieve, not just receive. And really what we're wanting to do is keep coming back to this question of what opportunity does this crisis present to us? Is there a a kingdom mentality, an opportunity to lean into what God's doing, to move beyond just a scarcity mentality where we are driven by fear and the desire to protect ourselves? Could the gospel lead us in this crisis to a a posture of self-sacrifice for the good of our neighbor? And so we're recording today. It's mid-May. By the way, Brad, I want to say just, hey, but also, man, great looking haircut. Oh, you're killing me. Tell us about that. What what happened to your hair, Brad? Uh, My beautiful identity. I mean, beard. Um, Yeah, I am an idiot. And um, one of the things that we say at the table a lot is that we try to be the kind of church that takes Jesus seriously and ourselves lightly. And so toward that end, um, we, at least the first part of that, uh, we started up a a COVID-19 relief fund and encouraged our people to give to that in a above and beyond giving as a way of caring for families and households, both within the church and our neighbors outside the church who have been most affected by this. And we're not a huge church. So the $3,000 that they'd given was pretty awesome and generous, but I kind of wanted to challenge them. And I said, Hey, you know, if, uh, if you double this amount, so, you know, another $3,000, uh, we'll send out a poll and you can vote on my haircut. And uh, I will commit to whatever that is, uh, wearing that for one Sunday uh, during the live stream. And but if we if we raised another twelve thousand dollars, so brought that total to fifteen, I would include my majestic, follically fashionable hipster beard in 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 that bet. And I grossly underestimated my own church. Honestly, I thought fifteen thousand dollars was like okay, like I want it to be something that they think they're going to be able to meet, but not really because I don't want to shave my beard. <laughs> and it turned out I was wor- like, I was worried about it being unrealistic and, and I was wrong. Um, so there was a ridiculous live streaming on our, our, our Facebook page that has me wearing what they subjected me to uh, last Sunday. Right. But uh, I have since repaired it and am now look a little bit like a 19th century British pugilist with a shaved head and a curly mustache. So you kind of look like you're one of those like about to get into that old timey boxy ring kind of thing. Would be a a British pugilist. Okay, uh, there you go. Nice. So yes, I was <laughs> accurate with my reference and label, <laughs> but I translated it in a way that people could understand. Oh, 
Oh, that's what you were doing. You were helping other people understand. Yeah. So I think, I think it looks great. And I think that one of the ways that pastors uh, show our love for our people is our uh, willingness to embarrass ourselves for them. So two thumbs up. Thanks. Yeah. I yeah. love them even more than I thought I did. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> well, that's great. So like I said, we are recording in mid-May and the conversation about what do we do next and what is the next stage going to look like and when are things going to open up and quote unquote go back to normal is dominating both headlines, but also social media conversations with friends. And um, one of the things that I think we see when, when this crisis first hit, you always see this in a crisis, is that it brings people together. And certainly we saw this around 9-11, but at the beginning of this crisis, there's a sense of, okay, we're all in this together. We're going to pull together for the good of the country, for the good of, of society. But that was eight weeks ago. And now, as we're talking about how do we open the country back up, man, it's, uh, I don't think it's going well, and we haven't even really made many changes yet. The, the polarization that's been there in our culture is kind of rearing its head. And really, I think we could say that th this is the inevitable outcome of secularism, which prizes individual liberty and, and autonomy. And so, yeah, we're now seeing left and right take their sides as we talk about how do we approach this question of reopening the country. Yeah, and, and that's where you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones said that all renewal is preceded with crisis. And I would add to that, that not all crisis necessarily leads to renewal. And so uh, we're starting to see that truth uh, in how much the longer this goes on, the more that our anxiety and our fear and our discomfort and our grief can kind of continues without abatement, the more the existing fault line in our society that have that are already polarized and partisan are becoming increasingly where people are drawing battle lines so that you're seeing diametrically opposed and diametrically different opinions on the speed of reopening and what the priority should be based on whether you live in a blue or a red county um, or a blue or a red state. And it's really... Or your own convictions, despite where you live. I mean, I think that, that uh, people's uh, responses are, are generated by what their views are. You might see yourself as opposed to everybody else, the only person in your neighborhood who really gets it. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, because in the absence of what sociologists call mediating institutions, those places where social identity is formed, in the absence of those and the distrust of institutions, our identity becomes nationalized. And so we skip over some of the local context sometimes and we identify with a, a particular perspective across the country and we don't realize how <laughs> like our local context actually should be informing that as, as well. So the reason why we want to talk about this kind of polarization, and especially in the midst of this, this larger question mark of, or the specific question mark of how quickly do we reopen? How do we do that? How do we prioritize that? Because these are things that Bryce and I, as pastors, trying to figure out whose livelihoods are on the line, who, who are are deeply caring for people who are having these conversations and are affected by the answers to them, those questions. So we kind of wanted to have a more of a conversational, a little bit more free form session or podcast episode today. Yeah. And so we are actually going to break this conversation into two parts. Today, we're really going to dive in and look at the problem of uh, anxiety and how that is driving this culture war at this moment. 
And uh, then later this week, we'll release the second part where we really get into the solution. Because this is a new situation. I mean, I, I know I actually was talking to a friend recently, and I was telling him we just started this podcast called Everything Just Changed. And he said, one of my pet peeves is when people say, this changes everything. Because it's like, you getting a second fridge doesn't change everything, you know? <laughs> It's such an overused phrase. It doesn't really change everything, but this does actually change. Everything has really changed. And yet what's so interesting is that the way that people are responding to this question of what does it look like to reopen the country? This didn't exist eight weeks ago. It's a completely new dilemma, and yet it has fallen out in very predictable ways. People who tend to be to the right of the political spectrum are more concerned about getting the economy going again. And people who are on the left are more concerned about what is the medical, you know, scientific community say about maintaining health as we continue to reopen. And so probably wants to move a little bit slower than those on the right. Fascinating to me how it's just in such, in such a predictable way, red states, blue states. Somebody said to me a couple of weeks ago, you know, states with conservative governors are going to open up a lot faster than states with liberal governors. Yeah. And that's just that's just a reality. Absolutely. Yeah. When we see that this is where people are explicitly drawing the fault lines, we need to ask the question, what does this represent? Why is this important to people? And why are these the things that we are willing to go toe to toe with? Why are these the hills we're willing to die on? And, and my gut is this, and I, I'm curious what you think about this, but I think that the conservative end of the spectrum that is pushing for an economic reopening of the country I think that what is especially at the root of their concern is personal freedom, right? Uh, is is personal and individual liberties. And because there is the conservative uh, yeah. is very much that if I have the freedom to pursue a, a profit-making venture, that will generate the economy because we have capitalists have set up a system that that incentivizes our selfishness, right? That's why it's yeah. worked. Yeah, well, and conservatives uh, believe that free markets are the best way to guarantee individual freedom. Bingo. And so the faster we reopen the economy, local businesses, everything, the better we're going to do at guaranteeing individual freedom. Absolutely. And there is good and there is, let's just say, not so good uh, aspects of that or, or incomplete, right? right? And on the left, the the concern for health and safety and like opening up too quickly, we'd rather stay on lockdown, trust the experts, is because there's a, there's a genuine, sincere desire at the root for the common good, right? And, right? and again, that's something else we can acknowledge. And yet, at the same time, on the left, there is a, an assumption <laughs> that we know what the common good is. Right. And that what we think is the common good as it affects us is what will be best for all people. And, you know, I live in Boulder County, which is highly affluent. And, you know, they think Bernie Sanders is almost progressive enough to earn their vote, right? So there is, there is an assumption that the perspective, despite our being woke, right, uh, there is an assumption that we see what people of in lower economic classes actually need. So. Yeah. I, I think that those are... Well, and, and just sort of a... Uh, the United States of America is a very large country. 
And the way that this crisis is playing out in New York City right now is different than anywhere else in the country. But in, in Orange County, I haven't looked in a week or so, but the, the last time I looked, there were 42 people who had died from COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And that, that's tragic and, that, and that's awful. But it's certainly, uh, if the goal was to avoid overwhelming the hospitals, that, that has been accomplished. And so the question of, does, does the whole nation have to open up in the same way at the same time, according to the way that, you know, experts roll that out? Or are there local differences in the way that that's going to all play out? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's interesting. I I just looked it up. As of today, it's 66 deaths in Orange County. But I don't know what the population of Boulder County, the population of Orange County is 3.2 million people. I'm guessing that's a lot larger than yeah. Boulder. Yeah, we're 300,000. Yeah. 66 deaths out of 3.2 million people. You know, again, tragic, horrible for those 66 people and their family. And yet we have flattened the curve. Well, and, but still like, (laughs) right. Even there, you know, that might have been the explicit aim. Yeah. But who of us, especially who are Christians, but any of us would not want to do everything we could to prevent even a single death. Right. And so, but we have this tension of, well, it's one thing for, you know, white upper middle class pastor of a small affluent suburban church in Colorado who he, along with he and his wife can work from home. It's easier for me to say that when I'm not having to juggle whether or not to go back to my hourly wage job and feed my kids, right? Like just, and and the hard part, you know, what sucks about this whole thing and this polarization is I'm even afraid to say that on a podcast because if you even remotely acknowledge the, the rightness of those who are on, quote unquote, the other side, you must believe what they do. And you must. Right, right. And so there's these twin concerns about, on the one side, the economic impact of this crisis. And so we need to go back to work as quickly as we can. On the other side, there's the concern about public health and the long-term kind of health ramifications of this. Why is it so hard for us to say those are both legitimate concerns? Yeah. And, and it seems like acknowledging that there's one that one of those concerns is valid tends to lead to like a dismissal of the other. And I, I, I guess my hope and maybe my frustration is that why cannot we as Christians at least say, yeah, actually both of these things are really important. And so it's a lot more complicated than just, hey, open things up as quickly as we can, or hey, just listen to the experts and do what they say. Yeah. And that's right. Like if all of us are, are trying to figure out what the hell to do with that. And I think as a pastor, because like, as you and I are both trying to figure out in our respective places and re- resources is at what point do we regather on Sunday morning, knowing that as ch- church plants, it's not just a, a theological conviction that we should be doing that. It's also a, a financial reality. And there's a ticking time clock for church plants that if you're not financially self-sustaining, you're done. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should just explain that a little bit more because it's not, we don't know uh, if that's super clear to whoever might be listening to this, that yeah, both totally. Brad and I have planted, started new churches that are three or four years old. And so I think my church is not, I don't think your church is, is financially self-sufficient. Nope. We're dependent on, on the generous giving of people out outside of our churches, but we're also, my church is, our existence is contingent on continuing to grow and we're not growing uh, right now when we're not meeting. And so there is a sense of urgency of when can we meet again? Because A, we want to gather with God's people to worship and care for people, but also we want to continue to love and serve those who are not yet part of God's church. Mm. 
And for those who are already with us and among us, we have this holistic anthropology that doesn't divide between the spiritual animal that is our humanity and the physical humanity. And so we understand that embodied social interaction is really important for our mental and emotional health. Right. <laughs> Right. So I think here, here's my by no means uh, arrived at. Um, I was reading this article from Carrie Nywolf recently, who uh, is a church growth guy. Um, he used this language of asking the question as leaders, and this is pastors specifically to in his audience, but this applies to all of us, right? Is are we seeing this event, this everything just changed event? Is it primarily interruptive? Meaning, is it requiring us to put on hold or pause or even cancel things that we will be going back to in some form or another uh, once that's over? Or are we seeing this as a disruptive event? And uh, a, a disruption is far more foundational than an interruption because it's saying that you can't just swap out the curtains, furniture, and paintings on the wall. You actually need to clear the, the infrastructure off of the foundation and rebuild according to a new reality because it's not that the your tastes and styles have changed. It's that the foundation yeah. has shifted underneath you. Yeah, and, and Andy Crouch made a similar observation a few weeks back when he was asking the question, as this initially hit, a lot of us are treating this like it's a blizzard, which, you know, we don't have blizzards in Southern California, but a blizzard, it shuts things down for a couple of days. You wait it out until things can go back to normal. But sometimes a blizzard is the beginning of winter and it's the beginning of a season that lasts for several months. And we're already in that, but but he kind of maybe pressed the metaphor to its breaking point says, you know, maybe the uh, the blizzard is actually the beginning of a, of a new age where yeah. dynamics are changing for a period of years not just for months. Um, yeah. And 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 where that that analogy is so helpful in terms of setting expectations on a chronological timeline. However, like <laughs> I, I don't know how to how to force his metaphor into to my categories, but like I think to say that it, if this is a disruptive event, it means that the ice age that's starting will also lead to an entirely altered landscape on the other side of it, such that the very geography for culture and ministry is, it's not just that this interruption is going to last longer. It's that when it clears, you are not going to recognize your surroundings. Wow. Right? You're not going to recognize what that is. Yeah. And so the, the reason, the way this is all relevant to this conversation of like this negative polarization between personal freedom and the common good, or between economic uh, restoration and, uh, um, physical health preservation, right? The way that's related is this, is I, I, I am convinced that the polarization is exacerbated because in our desperation, we are insisting and refusing to give up on the hope that this is an interruptive event. Part of the reason why th there's so much power and emotion behind this is because we have not made the switch from realizing this is not a temporary thing, that there is massive, major cultural, societal disruption. There is no going back to the way of life we had before. 
It's not that it's going to last longer than we thought. It's that it is gone. It's dead. Yeah. Well, and can I even take that a step further? Because I think maybe where this is relevant to the conversation we've been having in this podcast about the way that both left and right, both, let's say, the, the Christian church and unbelievers have all been shaped by secularism, as we've been exploring in the last several episodes, is that we've all come to the place where identity has to be something we create for ourselves rather than something we receive from God. We talked a lot about that in the last couple episodes. But what that means, if we have to shape our own and build our own identity, that our identity is inherently fragile because it's, it's based on what we are able not just to build, but to perpetuate, to continue to support. And when this crisis interrupts everything about our lives, it threatens everything, not just about, you know, am I going to be able to pay the bills for the next six months? It, it threatens my identity. And so that yeah. produces anxiety. Yeah, and because- anxiety does not lead to human flourishing. It leads to a polarization that's breaking out along these political lines we're talking about, it leads to blame shifting. And I was even thinking about how really in these daily briefings, you know, which which aren't daily anymore, but you, you almost have the embodiment, like the hero characters of each camp. You've got Trump as the pro open the economy hero. And then you've got Fauci and Burks as the, hey, let's follow science and be a little bit more measured in this. You know, you've got your two heroes, but, but the, the conspiracy theories come in because when our identity is fragile and when it's threatened, anxiety is the result and therefore we want to blame somebody else absolutely and so so if if this is merely an interruptive event and and if we have these identities that, that we have built around sourcing our dignity value and worth around what we have achieved and therefore all of our circumstances and how our circumstances prevent uh, like if we can invest in our circumstances and pad our lives such that we don't have to experience any suffering because suffering erodes that identity, then if this is an interruptive event, then we have to just make it through. And that's something that we can control and have some agency over. But the longer that that interruption happens, I think the more emotionally we start to realize, even if we're not even aware of this, this I think this is on a subconscious level across society, then the longer it goes on, the more it becomes a potentially disruptive event. And that sends that anxiety that we've already been feeling that you're describing, Bryce, through the roof. And there need there has to be an outlet for that anxiety. There has to be a way that that is expressed in a way that brings resolution. And since the ruts of our expressing any negative emotions have been very much shaped and formed by social media these days, that's that's where it's all going to come out. And the point of that is to understand that it's actually fear that's driving this. And whether you're talking about the left or the right, the need for control and being able to, to make sense of or have an explanation or a narrative that explains why we're experiencing this anxiety should, for the Christian especially, prompt us toward a compassion for those who have diametrically opposed and different convictions around this. We should be able to have compassion for that because as a Christian, our identity is not rooted in that. We, we're able to lament uh, because we're cared for and loved by God despite our circumstances. And in any circumstance, our identity is not tied up in our circumstance. And that should be a freeing thing 
that helps us, number one, do the work of lament and so that we can make that transition from this being an interruptive event to a disruptive event, but have a hell of a lot of compassion and understanding for those who, are, who haven't made that transition yet and are really struggling because this is hard. It's, it's, it's traumatic. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we were talking about how this anxiety is coming out in all kinds of ways. And it's just bringing me back to Edwin Friedman's book, The Failure of Nerve, and the work that he did around family systems theory and the anxiety in a family system. If you don't know, Edwin Friedman was a rabbi and a family counselor, and he began to develop a theory as he counseled people who'd come out of addiction, I think. And he found that often people would get sober and would be fine for, uh, in their recovery you know, for a long period of time. And then when they would re-enter their family system, they would often regress. And what he found was that the anxiety in a system is far more powerful than the intelligence or gifting or willpower of any individual in that system. And I think as we think about the way that Friedman talked about anxiety in a family, it, it just plays out exactly in what we're looking at right now. So we talked about one of the things that happens when there's anxiety in the system is regression. And so, you know, even the ways that we talk to people, like I would never yell at my family, right? I would hope I would never yell at my family, but under stress, you know, you're in the car and the kids are loud and it's chaotic and we don't know which direction we're supposed to go. Then we start shouting at each other, right? And again, in our society, it's amazing to see your friends on Facebook who you're like, these are very kind people. Why are they shouting at each other, right? The anxiety begins to spill over into reactivity, uh, into sort of a fear-based way of, of looking at the world and interacting with others. This sort of, uh, this is my pet peeve, where if you say something that's maybe somewhat uh, uh, critical of one person, the response is, well, you know, the alternative is, and it's like, well, I can still be critical of person A without therefore endorsing person B. Another thing that happens when anxiety levels begin to rise is this kind of herd mentality, where because of the herd mentality, we identify identify with the camp and then sort of the lowest common denominator drives that camp. And so those who are anxious in a system are going to want to bring the more healthy, the leaders down to kind of their own level of anxiety. And what it means is the least mature, the least emotionally healthy drives the train in terms of where this thing is going. Now, if you take what you just said and apply that to the current situation, you have two really cataclysmic dynamics that are going on. And the first is going to be one, something everyone agrees with. And the second is probably going to be something that pisses everybody off. And that's okay. Uh, the first is social media is built upon incentivizing the loudest voice and the most anxious disruptive voice. And so if that's the case, it's going to be pouring gasoline onto the dynamic you just described about of emotional stability becoming defined by the lowest common denominator. When everything is flattened by social media, there's nothing to filter out the Friedman would say the, the troublemakers, right? The, the people who... Yeah. And so the same voices that operate at normal talking level kind of get passed over because you're not really making a big stink. Bingo. That, so that's the part we all agree with. That's the part we all agree with. Um, here's the part that's going to piss some people off. And, and Bryce, I'm sorry, you can throw me under the bus from this and you don't have to agree with me. Um, however, when the functional, visual, national, governmental leader of the 
country's response, that is President Donald Trump, is categorically weighting the bottom of that common denominator, both in his own social media engagement as well as his official capacity. What you have is a a almost like a competitive rush to the very bottom of, of what is helpful and to the most anxious yeah. and throw on there that, that journalism and cable news is incentivized and, and built upon a ratings based system. Well, th- there's the counterpoint to what you just said, because it's either Donald Trump or the mainstream media. And we, can we just say that like neither of these parties is leading us in a non anxious way? Exactly. Turns out that, you are by definition committing the sin that Friedman uh, identifies as blame shifting. If those respective parties cannot take responsibility for their own differentiation and emotional state and say, hey, you know what? Maybe I should lead and live and function in a way that does not blame somebody else for my own actions. (laughs) Maybe if I did that, it would break the spiral, the increasingly quick spiral down and halt the momentum, reverse it, and actually lead toward unity and flourishing. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that kind of gets to the final aspect of Friedman's theory, which is we live in this age of the quick fix, where we want things to be fixed immediately, which leads to a fixing of the symptoms instead of addressing the underlying causes. And we do that with use of technology. We do that through commentary And we think that technology and commentary are going to fix this thing. But here's here's where this kind of butts up against the consumerism of the world that we live in. Consumerism is a way of living that allows us all to sit in judgments and to have an opinion about something without actually any responsibility for it. And so we can sit and we can watch YouTube, we can watch the news, we can get on Facebook, social media, and we can condemn what the other side is doing or not doing without actually vulnerably entering into a solution at all ourselves. So the solution, again, in Friedman's theory here, is the well-differentiated leader. And a a well-differentiated leader is simply somebody who's able to enter into an emotionally anxious environment and remain connected without allowing the anxiety of those around them to pull them off course and off mission. And what Friedman said was that he found in his, in his work that it really wasn't a matter of the talent, the intelligence, the giftedness, or the conviction of the leader so much as it was a ability to just remain non-anxious in an anxious system. Just that presence created something of a release valve to enable, to, to eventually begin to bring some health to an environment. Absolutely. He says um, in the introduction to his book, he, he says, as long as new innovations are focused on method and technique rather than on the elements of emotional process, all changes are doomed to recycle. And he mm-hmm. defines a gridlock system, the recycling of these uh, changes that like good initiatives fall apart because they can't reverse the momentum. That's the gridlock system. He says there's three dynamics of that. Number one is an unending treadmill of trying harder <laughs> or, or, or maybe in this situation, shouting louder yeah. uh, to looking for answers rather than reframing questions. 
right? We're just trying to address the things people are talking about instead of actually ask the question of like, why are they talking about it? Like, like what we did at the beginning of this, where we tried to say, okay, if these are the questions that people are trying to answer, what's the need underneath that? What's the song beneath the words that is, is, is really the deeper thing that they're trying to Right, because if somebody shows up and they're, they're fearful and they're anxious, telling them that they're stupid or that they're wrong does not lessen their fear or anxiety. In fact, it's just going to provoke an even greater response. And so it's not useful in any way. Yeah. Yeah. And what makes that especially difficult is this third one is either or thinking that creates false dichotomies. Mm -hmm. And what are we talking about right now? if not a false dichotomy. Because let's be honest, if you are going around talking about needing to reopening, insisting on it and protesting it, if your reason for insisting that things reopen is because you need a haircut, go home. I have difficulty empathizing with that. And yet there is a fear aspect of that, that we've got to find a way to get to the root of. But I don't think we start there. I think where we need to start um, you know, Bryce and I, you and I have a friend who's a pastor who he is doing some amazing work in a very, very urban, poor minority neighborhood of a major city. And the very people who wealthy elite liberals who live in my context are saying, we need to stop the economy to protect them. Our friend is saying pretty loudly on social media, you know what? Really appreciate your concern. However, my people cannot feed their children. Okay. And what they're saying they need, maybe we should pay attention to that, is we do need some kind of a, a plan that reopens the economy that says that they can earn a paycheck, right? And so yeah. I'm going to listen to the latter. And I think that's where we need to direct our empathy and compassion, especially toward, because I think that's where it, those are the people who actually need more of a, of a platform that our current system does not, is not incentivized yeah. to, to. Well, and just to kind of, I think that brings back to the point that I was just trying to hit a minute ago, which is that the opposite of, of what you just described, somebody in uh, you know, a situation advocating for those that are really being affected is the person on social media who does not have a dog in the fight, who is yelling about what is going wrong. It, it reminds me, are you familiar with the man in the arena quote? Oh, uh, yeah. Teddy Roosevelt. I just pulled this up. I love this. I mean, I found this uh, through Brene Brown initially, but I, I love this quote. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Mm. That is just inspiring and beautiful, but it, it speaks to the way that it, I don't think he's only saying put up or shut up. I, I think he's also saying we have to have a level of compassion in order to be moved into action 
but doing that brings inherent risks with it. And, and the, the main risk, maybe in this moment that it brings with it, is the risk of criticism. Like as soon as you say something, people are going to slam you from one side or the other. And that's why maybe to move this to the next point, if Friedman is saying that the solution to an anxious system is the well-differentiated leader, the person who's able to enter into anxiety without letting other people's anxiety pull them off track, but is still able to remain connected and present with people, then maybe the call of Christians in this moment is not to have the right answer and figure out how to thread the needle so that the right and the left are exactly balanced or whatever, or you win the day, you win the argument. Maybe the call of the Christian is to just stop the anxiety. Yeah. So how do we stop the anxiety? Being a non-anxious presence may be the solution, but just don't be anxious is not much of a strategy. So we're going to pause the conversation at this point for now. And on Thursday, in just a couple of days, we're going to release the second half where we get into the resources that God gives us to be non-anxious people in a world that is going crazy. So please join us for that. Thanks so much for being with us on this new podcasting journey. If you're appreciating what you're hearing, we'd love it if you would share this episode with a friend. You can send a text to this episode or, of course, share on social media. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. I'm Bryce Hales with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Kevin McLeod and used under a Creative Commons license from filmmusic.io. We'll be back in a couple of days on Everything Just Changed.